Stay hungry, stay foolish. Today's show examines the assorted way we mislead ourselves every single day. A psychology course with all the boring bits taken out. Prepare for a whirlwind tour of some of the latest research fused with a healthy dose of humor. You'll discover just how irrational you really are, which delusions keep you sane, how to boost your productivity, and why you've never kept a New Year's resolution. We welcome author of You Are Not So Smart, Why Your Memory Is Mostly Fiction, Why You Have Too Many Friends on Facebook, and 46 Other Ways You're Deluding Yourself, and host of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, David McRaney. Welcome to the show. Oh my God. Thank you so much. That was a fantastic intro. And I feel many of the things I've written about are happening in my brain right now. (laughs) It's great to have you on the show, David. You start the book by telling us we think we are rational, logical beings who see the world as it really is, when in fact we're deluded. But you tell us that's okay because it keeps us sane. Yes, absolutely. That's the way it works. Sometimes I think that um, the stuff I write about is misunderstood to say that people are, are stupid or flawed or ignorant or some, or that we're like uh, broken in some way. But most of this comes from the the sciences that study human reasoning. And human reasoning is literally coming up with reasons for why you feel the way you feel, think the thing you think, or did the thing that you did. A lot of our cognition takes place after the fact, like after we've felt fear or surprise or joy or envy or anger, or we're, we have a goal or a plan that we want something or we want to do something or we do do something. And then we employ our reasoning faculties to explain that. And if it's something that we feel might cause us to incur a social cost, we don't just explain it, we justify it. And so as people with human brains that have a, a prefrontal cortex, you know, with this advanced, evolved portion of the brain that other creatures don't have, we're capable of reason and rationality. We do amazing things with reason and rationality, and we're capable of skepticism and measured responses to complex problems. But we very often fall short of those ideals. And when we do fall short, we fail to notice and we proceed with a sort of undeserved confidence in our past performances. So I, I like to say that the the two big themes of You Are Not So Smart are you're unaware of how unaware you are, and you're the unreliable narrator in the story of your life. Unaware of how unaware you are is the notion that the antecedents to a lot of our behaviors and our thoughts and our emotions are unknown to us, but that doesn't prevent us from coming up with some sort of internal narrative for that, something they they call confabulation in psychology and neuroscience. And that's the second part. You're the unreliable narrator in the story of your life because the stories that we create explain ourselves to ourselves. They tend to be very self-serving. We tend to be the heroes in those stories. And if those stories are actually inaccurate or incorrect, we don't know because sometimes they are, sometimes they're very accurate and correct, but a lot of times they're not. But either way, that becomes the story of your life and we build them up over time and that becomes our identities. So that's sort of the core idea of You Are Not So Smart. It'd be great to give a brief explanation of the three main subjects of the book, which are cognitive biases, heuristics, and logical fallacies, David. Yeah, sure. I chose those three things because I think they come up most often in the discussion of when our Cognition leads us astray, and we're not aware that we've been led astray. In fact, we will explain and justify ourselves away really hard so that we feel like we weren't strayed by the natural way we make sense of things. I think all three are um, 
connected to the dual process theory of cognition and reasoning. Daniel Kahneman's great book, Thinking Fast and Slow, is sort of taken, I think, as the as the dual process theory, dual process in that it's about system one versus system two. System one is intuitive and fast, and uh, system two is sort of contemplative and slow. And we have these two systems play off each other, and we're mostly in autopilot mode, mostly thinking fast. But there are many different dual process theories that all have that same general idea. There's the heuristical systematic model. There's the elaboration likelihood model. There's a lot of them. All three of those are based on this one principle, which is that in the tooth and nail environment in which we evolved these brains, in which all the animals of the, of the, of the earth that have locomotion evolved nervous systems, we were placed in a sort of um, risk reward situation all the time, which is do you focus your attention on accuracy or do you focus your attention on speed, both thought and action? So you can imagine if you hear a rustling in the leaves and you're a proto-human and you hear the rustling and you're like, hmm, that could be a thing that wants to eat me or that could just be the wind and the leaves. I'm going to go investigate because <laughs> I really am. I'm going to go see because it's very important that I either lay down a, a, an accurate uh evidence-based foundation for my beliefs here in this natural environment. Or you could just, you know, say, I'm going to go the other way. And false positives generally aren't that dangerous to us. They aren't that costly. So you can build up false positives that can, can in, in themselves, since they're never challenged, can become belief systems, right? So since we usually trade off speed for accuracy, that's what's considered a heuristic. We have a lot of them that are just naturally in our minds that are, they built up over the long course of our evolutionary history. And so they're simple rules of thumbs for reacting in situations that are similar to situations in which we may have encountered both physically or maybe cognitively in the past. Biases are the root of the word bias is to, is the idea of, a, of an inclined plane that's leaning one way or the other. That's the idea that the human mind, when it faces certain situations is more likely to think in one way than it is to think in the other way. And so we're biased, for instance, to confirm our assumptions instead of disconfirm our assumptions. There are many biases. I think there's more than 250 that have been identified, but these are ways that we're more likely to think in certain situations than not. They're mostly adaptive in that thinking in that way serves some adaptive purpose that was useful for our species in the long run, in the big picture. But in the short run, in the small picture, they can often lead us into strange cognitive territory, especially in environments in which we have very rarely faced or very new to us, like modern politics or modern business or the internet, things like that. And then uh, fallacies are when we are engaging in argumentation, and there's a whole wing of the psychology of reasoning that has settled on a model of argumentation that sees it as an evolved mechanism for coming to group decisions so that we were geared up to argue with other people. We expect other people to challenge our justifications and expectations. So we're engaged in that process and we're trying to employ some kind of branching logic to our reasoning. We're saying like, I think this because of this, I propose this is true because of this evidence. There are a whole catalog of ways that we engage in that process that leads us to completely fallacious conclusions 
that are so common and so routine, they seem to illustrate that the brain prefers to think in that way instead of others. So all three of these are habits of thought that seem to be default. They seem to be just the way brains work. And unless you are trained or taught or you are effortfully attempting to work against those default settings, you're likely to go into certain incorrect assumptions or strange behaviors that are so routine that we can actually predict them when people are put into certain contexts. What I love about the book, David, is it's such a great book for those who want to improve themselves. So this show about innovation or evolution or transformation, you really need to start looking in the mirror and understand these biases, heuristics and fallacies that we all, we delude ourselves every single day. And I think that's what jumped out to me. You spoke earlier on about the antecedents that forego our decisions. And we think that we're making decisions rationally all the time. But you talk about one, which is a major one for both innovation and also our worldviews, which is priming. Priming is a principle in psychology that's been around for a while. It's something that Daniel Kahneman talks about a lot in his uh, research. It's also something that the current wave of psychologists are attempting to replicate, and the replications are complicated, to say the least. Uh, it may be something that becomes so um, – it, it may be a, an idea that's so complex that we rename it, and it may be an idea that uh, the evidence becomes so weak that we don't consider it being something that has as great of an effect as we once did. But the general idea of priming is still true all throughout all cognition, which is that every perception sets off a chain reaction in your um, the network of neurons in your head because every idea in your head is associated with something else. So the general idea of priming is that when we are, when we face a certain stimuli and we don't even notice that stimuli, in our conscious mind, it still causes some reaction in the mind uh, that then bubbles up and can influence our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Uh, this is the, the sort of the fundamental concept of, of what happens when you are surrounded by certain colors or you're surrounded by certain smells. Or, um, you know, it's the reason that you know some stores have um, popcorn uh, popping in the in around the entrance, or it's the idea of. Um, if a certain advertisement is just around you all the time, but you don't really ever look at it or read it or think about it, it still affects you in some way. And then you can be primed to behave in a certain way without realizing that that priming is around you. There's studies where pe people were in a room and they ate a crumbly cookie and the cookie left a lot of crumbs on the table. And Either they were in a room that had just been cleaned with a very powerful cleaning product, or they were in a room that had not been cleaned with a powerful cleaning product. And the people who were in the room that had the scent of the cleaning product were more likely to clean up after themselves than people who were not. However, the replication turns out for some of these more, there are literally some really strange versions of that kind of research. But broadly speaking, the idea is that environments have a lot of uh, impact on how we behave. and. I spent some time with a nudge unit working on a separate project a couple of years ago, and there are nudge units all throughout the world now on every uh, point on the globe. And they're, the governments and institutions use them to get people to um, engage in behaviors without really realizing why they're engaging those behaviors. And a lot of that is sort of based off the ideas that come out of the priming research. One of my favorite ones was performed by the, by the nudge unit in the UK. There was a slaughterhouse that they were 
consulting for that wanted to increase the amount of hand washing that took place. And they had tried a bunch of different methods for getting people to wash their hands. And when the nudge unit came in, they looked at all the research and they said, hmm, well, here's an idea. And they had, they had seen something similar in a hospital, I think, that they had consulted for. And what they did is they had a, a stamp that was made out of vegetable dye. And it looked like a horrible, disgusting infection. And that that was stamped on the top of people's hands when they came in to work in the morning, when they checked, when they did their time card. And then at the end of the day, when they uh, did their time card out, their hands were checked to see if they still had the dye on them. So for the dye to be gone at the end of the day, you had to be had to have washed your hands a certain number of times. By employing that, the hand washing went up by like 87% or something. Instead of all these other techniques they had tried, which were like seminars and like uh, they were expected to go through training and all this other kind of stuff, or they read, they read stuff and emails, like trying to like blunt force, put facts in these people's heads to get them to, to affect their behavior was much less successful than simply altering something in their environment, which would encourage them to engage in the behavior. I found this one fascinating for businesses who are looking at transformation. So maybe an older organization is trying to transform, bring in new mindsets into the company. The priming plays a part. So the environment absolutely affects how people behave. And you give the great example of casinos in this respect. Casinos are, are are like boxes of nothing but priming. Like uh, casinos have 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 worked very. Casinos do A/B testing constantly. Everything you do is quantified. I mean, going back to before, this was like a a, a common practice with the metrics you can get from you know social media or the internet. Casinos have been doing this since they there have been casinos. There are no windows, so you don't know you don't notice the passage of time. All of the machines are tuned to the C, uh, the key of C, so they're all harmonic with one another. And there's research to suggest that C is the kind of is the tone, at least in Western cultures, that causes people to feel that sort of effervescent. Mm, I'm in a fun place. <laughs> I got to change my theme tune, man. <laughs> <laughs> and then and. Uh, the carpet is this one sort of psychedelic, strange, fractal-looking thing that per, that keeps you from noticing that you've moved from one room to the next. So it's one big blended kaleidoscope of stimulation detonating against your retinas, right? People just bring you drinks. and You're in an environment where you are constantly being encouraged to stay in a flow state that takes away pressure and time and the feelings of, of risk or anxiety, you are encouraged to just become an automaton in that environment that is, you know, delivering money into their system. <laughs> One of the ones you mentioned, which is bringing it now down to the individual was the studies by John Bark. They were published in 1996, you said, in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, where they primed with words suggesting older people. And that had a massive effect on people's behavior. Yeah, yeah. I'm not aware of how that's doing in the replication, but I know that um, the original research, they would have people fill out forms or questionnaires. They had to fill in the blank. And uh, some people were ha had to, when they engaged that questionnaire, the words that they were solving in the puzzles were sort of related to concepts of being elderly. and. Other people did not have those words in, in their puzzles. And then when they asked those people to turn their, their work in by walking down a hallway to, a, to an elevator, they 
measured how quickly they walked from one location to the next. And the people who had been doing work that was related to uh, words associated with being elderly walked a little slower than the people who were doing neutral words. Um, and th that same sort of work has been done with people who've been primed with rudes related to um, being rude versus people unscrambling words related to being polite. And then when they're asked to wait in line to turn in their documents, because there's an actor pretending to have a conversation with the research assistant, um, the people who are primed to be polite wait nine minutes and the people who are primed to be rude wait about five minutes before they butt in. And then, you know, this is all about the associative architecture of, of the human brain. A good example of this is called the Baker Baker phenomenon. They call it Baker Baker because if you were to meet someone, say on an airplane and their name was John or Jane Baker, and then um, they tell you what they did for a living was, you know, I, I am involved in rac raccoon wrangling for the city of Toronto. Um, you're much more likely to remember what they do for a living than you are to remember what their last name is. But if at the other hand, they say their name is uh, Thomas Bumblebee, <laughs> then they tell you that I, I bake breads for a living. I bake, I'm a, I'm a baker. You're much more likely to remember, uh, even with a strange name, the person's profession than you are their, 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 their last name. So people are actually given these large banks of names and professions of people with surnames that could go one way or the other, like Taylor or Smith or whatever, right? And they find that um, people are very bad at remembering people's surnames, but very good at remembering their professions. And the reason is because we're categorical thinkers. So the category of a person's last name has far fewer connections to other ideas than the category of a person's profession. Because if you say yeah, you bake, then you can think of all these different associations and each other one of those associations has associations and it's just a giant nested spider web on top of a thousand spider webs of connections of ideas. On the other hand, a person's last name is connected just to ideas related to people's names. So even though it's the exact same word, you're much less likely to recall it if it's not embedded within a network of other associations. And that's one of the general sort of underlying principles in the idea of priming is that certain concepts are so nested within a network of associations that we're much more likely to affect our thinking than other ideas are. It's like a, a Hansel and Gretel breadcrumbs leading you to a conclusion or the desired conclusion or outcome for the whoever is priming you. Abso yeah, absolutely. A lot of the times this stuff works because we assume that we are these hyper-rational, logical, conscious entities moving through the world choosing what we want to do and being only being affected by the things that we allow to affect us. And the research says that's just not how anything, anything works that we're, that we're extremely influenced by everything around us. Even the colors of the clothes of the people we interact with. I mean, everyone is aware of how the weather can affect mood, but the way a room is arranged as much as we would like to think that has no effect on our psychology. It absolutely does. From a self-awareness perspective as well, Dave, if you're trying to become a more critical thinker, for example, this 
the knowledge of these biases and the fantastic job you do in the book really helps you. It's a great first step on understanding all of this. And one of the ones I thought was interesting, you, you can prime yourself. So your self-talk becomes really important, especially like what you mentioned about older people, the old words making people walk slower, etc. So that your self-talk becomes extremely important. And closely linked to that is something you mentioned earlier on, which is the whole idea of confabulation. Oh my God, confabulation. This is one of those things that I would like, I hope everyone in the world, if I've ever done anything, is to introduce this term to people who've never heard of it, or maybe you've heard of it in passing and you didn't think it was something related to psychology. Confabulation is a vital part of self-knowledge. It's a vital building block for being a critical thinker. It's a vital building block for being an effective whatever you're trying to be an effective person at being. The general idea of confabulation is that this is when we create a narrative to explain something, usually our own behavior, and it's just not true. We confabulate, which means that we are fabricating, but we don't know we're doing it. That's the key thing. We think we're actually telling ourselves something true. The research that really illustrates how easily and how often we do this is split brain research. In split brain research, there are people who have a certain kind of epilepsy that to um, mitigate the effect of the epileptic seizures, they do what's called a corpus callostomy, which is the corpus callosum is the dense bundle of nerve fibers that connects the left and right hemispheres of the brain. You can just about sever that, not all the way, but almost all the way. And it will cause, it will, it will make it so that the effects of the seizure don't cascade all the way across the brain. They can be localized to one side or the other. But the result of that is the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere are unable to communicate, not in the way they used to communicate. And this introduces something very strange. The left hemisphere is mostly, um, most of our language comes from the left hemisphere, which means that when we're thinking in words and we're communicating in words, that usually comes out of the left hemisphere. And if we are asked to explain, if we're tasked with explaining ourselves to other people or justifying our actions to others, we do that with words and we do that coming out of a, a place in the left hemisphere. And so they've called this the left brain interpreter. They call it the interpreter because what will happen in, these, in this research is that the hemisphere that can speak will see one image and the hemisphere that can't speak will see another Split brain patients can, one hand can be putting on a shirt and the other can be taking it off. This teaches us more than anything is that the sources of our emotions are, are hidden to us. And often they are initiated by things that we are unconscious of or unaware of, but that doesn't mean we're going, not going to explain ourselves to ourselves and other people. One of the studies I think I've, I've spoken about more than any other is done by Nisbet and Miller, where they had, a, they set up nylon stockings in a department store. And they had them in a row. There were four different stockings. And they asked people to come by and test the stockings. This was in the 70s. And they said, out of all these stockings, which one do you think is the best product? Which one could you see yourself buying? And they would pick. And then um, four to one, they would pick the stocking that was farthest to the right, placed in a series. And the last one that they looked at, that's the one that they said was the best. And then they asked people to explain why they chose that. And people would say, because it has a good color, it has a good texture, it reminds me of something. But what they didn't tell them was that all the stockings came out of the same pack. They're not different in any way. They're identical. 
But they don't know that. They have no way of knowing that. And so tasked with coming up with a justification for their conclusion, they will. And this is what we do. We, will, we are justifying machines. We explain ourselves to ourselves constantly, even when we don't have any evidence to base that explanation upon. And when we don't have anything to base it on, we'll base it on whatever comes to mind or whatever seems reasonable to the other person, whatever seems justifiable in that context or in that culture. And the split brain patient shows us that we do that even when we're very, very wrong. We just don't say, I don't know. No one in that study said, I have no idea. But more importantly, no one in that study said, I chose it because it was the one on the right, because that's actually what's happening. It's called the serial position effect. And in a culture that reads from left to right, when they're in a state of uncertainty, they tend to go with the last thing they looked at, which was on the right-hand side. So if you know that as the person presenting this scenario, you have a lot of power over the person in the scenario because you know they're going to confabulate and justify their decision whether or not they understand why they're making that decision. You said at the start, your work can often be confused as we're stupid beings. It's more about knowledge is power. When you start understanding the biases and heuristics and fallacies we suffer from, we can actually start improving ourselves. And when you understand these effects on yourself, you can start challenging your own stories because sometimes we you know you're having a drink with your friends and somebody starts telling a story and it's embellished massively and you're kind of going wait a second that's not how it happened <laughs> but this explains why confabulation yeah it's yeah confabulation is so essential to the human experience and most of the time it's not a big deal we know people sharpen and flatten and aggrandize and embellish their stories we're, we're okay with that to an extent but we've all been in a situation where someone has told a story that happened to them and we're like, no, that happened to me or the, yeah. other, way around, yeah. or the other way around. Or I think from the outside, we often see people's behavior and we say, you know, they're doing X because of Y. And we know that we're like, that's why this person's doing that thing. That's why they're motivated to behave the way they're behaving. But from the inside, they don't know that. But we rarely stop to go, I'm probably engaging the same thing. Like, I probably have no idea why I'm doing what I'm doing, what's motivating me, because we would prefer to think that we are motivated by conscious goals and decisions and desires and stimuli. And the idea of anything being hidden or being, um, or for us pursuing goals for reasons we'd rather not be pursuing them, that really is uncomfortable. And so we avoid that, that sort of uh, thinking as much as possible. We do this because you mentioned we're pattern-seeking beings, and we do that to save energy. Like So a lot of this is because our brain takes up so much energy that we have to create patterns and create worldviews and put things into buckets in order to manage the amount of information that we have coming at us every day. Yeah, we are pattern-seeking machines, which makes total sense, right? Like you're when you get down to it, we're just trying to survive and thrive. And even if you're from the lowest level organism up to what we have, any organism that can sort of, if it sees a pattern in, if it notices a pattern that brings reward, it's more likely to engage in that pattern. If it notices a pattern in nature that precedes a reward, then it's going to be able to anticipate that reward when it sees the pattern. If it engages in a behavioral pattern that ends in a reward, it's more likely to engage in that behavior so that you can get the reward. That's how you train animals. That's how you train people. Um, and it's also how you can build up superstitious beliefs or magical thinking because certain patterns led to certain outcomes and you expect that outcome the next time the pattern happens. Um, and the same in the other direction. If you, if something bad happens, 
after a, a, a behavioral routine or after something that occurs in the environment, then you're more likely to avoid and you get, get anxiety and fear when you see that pattern occurring. I know that happens to me when I see, uh, I had a tornado hit my house when I was, um, uh, inside of it actually doing work. Um, and so when a certain type of weather starts to bubble up on the horizon, I get very anxious and, and afraid because I'm now uh, totally imprinted with the, the ability to, to realize when the tornadic, uh, a tornadic event is likely way earlier than another person who's never experienced that be able to. Um, and the same thing happens if we engage in behaviors that lead to bad outcomes, we will be less likely to engage in those behaviors. So our pattern recognition systems are incredibly powerful. Our ability to derive cause from effect is um, very, let's say, active, but not necessarily accurate. Uh, it's very blunt and broad. Um, it's it's satisfied with good enough and false positives. And so because of that, we tend to generate a model of reality that's more a representation of the complex and nuanced aspects of objective reality Interactions are broad and blunt and they're approximate, presumptuous, and we're probably very wrong in very, very many ways. So our narratives and strategies and memories and actions and decisions and judgments, they're all, they're all just good enough. And in an adaptive environment, that's is where it's based off of speed and broad, blunt uh, results, that was fine. It's just that we often find ourselves in situations today where the stakes are very high and the, the range of what is acceptable and what is um, the amount of uh, mistakes that we can make and how finely tuned those mistakes can be and how micro those mistakes can be to cause really bad outcomes. All that stuff is present in our current environment. And that's why a lot of the stuff doesn't seem adaptive because it was adapted to a different kind of living and thinking than we often find ourselves within right now. Hence getting in touch with you because we're in the knowledge economy trying to be good parents we're trying to not pass on the biases that we have been inducted into and think critically because that's actually one of the major skills of not just the future but the present but you mentioned the patterns there and you mentioned you know you've been able to spot things early but also that can be a fallacy and you talk about the brilliant texas sharpshooter fallacy <laughs> uh that's just the best Texas sharpshooter fallacy. One of my favorite best named fallacy for sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, I actually have a video. Uh, when I did, when I promoted the book, uh, we did a video of the, of this. If you go to YouTube and look for the book trailer, we actually had a, an actor perform this, uh, not the, they, we performed the illustration that is so commonly, um, used, which I'll explain. The idea of the Texas sharpshooter fallacy is that you imagine a, person with a gun shooting at the side of a barn and they shoot the side of the barn over and over and over and over again until it's filled with holes. And then they go up to the barn and they look where the holes have clustered because chaos and randomness, as they say, is clumpy. So it will clump up in some places. There will be some places where six or seven holes are almost touching. Now, remember, they were just shooting randomly at the side of the barn and there happened to be some places where randomness clumped up. And then they take paint and they paint a bullseye over the place where it clustered. And now it looks like they're a crack shot. Now it looks like they intended to shoot this spot where they painted the bullseye. I think I've done that as a child, by the way, <laughs> win, win against my brothers. <laughs> yeah. That's the visual metaphor, but what it's supposed to illustrate psychologically is that when human beings are confronted with chaotic systems in which uh, there is no pattern, 
There is no agency behind what's taking place. None of the information is actually pointing toward anything at all except pure chaotic randomness. We tend to look where the randomness has clumped up and clustered, and then we paint a bullseye around it depending on what it is we're trying to conclude and say, aha, see, that's, that shows this. That shows this thing that, I, that I'm trying to show. You see this a lot with conspiracy theories like the Kennedy assassination. There's, there's one where like Lincoln and Kennedy have all this, these same ideas. You know, Lincoln was, was killed in the Ford Theater. Kennedy was killed in a Lincoln made by Ford. How could that possibly be? You look at the, the you know, when the predictions of, of Nostradamus match what happened. In, there's all sorts of ways to take randomness in, and just cast a wide net. And then when you make a, a hit, say, I, I meant to, right? But when you look at, um, there are other ways where, like, one of the ways this has played out and, and had actual impacts on people's lives is um, cancer clusters. Like, 30% of people are going to get cancer. And so if you just look across the ent an entire nation, you will find places where cancer diagnoses clump up and cluster. People all tend to be diagnosed at the, around the same time in the same place. And so then you might think, well, there has to be a reason why randomness clumped up in that place. And so you look for things in the environment that could have caused it. Instead of blaming the clumpiness of randomness, you blame something in that environment. And sometimes I've seen power lines being be blamed. I've seen things in the drinking water be blamed. And in the, in the end that had nothing to do with it. It was just a, it was something, it was something that affects everyone causing a clumpiness. Another, probably the stark example that I, I think is most strange is in world war two, the, there were uh, a type of bomb that the Germans used against the, uh, the, the British that was completely random it was just shot into the city and um, it would just land wherever it landed and of course, if you took out a map and you put push pins where the bombs were hitting, they would seem to cluster up in some places. And in some places, they wouldn't cluster up at all. And there was there were certain uh, groups of people at that time who assumed that the places where the bombs were not hitting must be places where operatives lived, places where people who were double agents, that was where they lived and they were avoiding trying to bomb them. And so people would engage in behavior, suspicious behavior that would come to whatever conclusions and outcomes based off of this, this interpretation of the randomness of chaos. So being pattern-seeking machines, we are a certainty-generating machines, meaning seekers, you know, uncertainty is so maladaptive and meaninglessness is so maladaptive that the brain would rather come to a conclusion than remain doubtful and static. And so when faced with uncertainty, the mind creates certainty and a face with meaninglessness, it creates meaning when it sees chaos, it turns it into order. And, uh, if you don't have a conclusion ready, you're going to come to some kind of conclusion because you need a narrative to, to as a framework to string up your conscious experience. So this Texas sharpshooter fallacy is a great example of that because, because your ancestors recognized patterns and changed their bet, their behavior, they were, became able to acquire food instead of becoming food. And that's a really good, that's a good and useful tool. But then you put it into a situation that's far too complex, like looking at a map of bomb strikes in a war and the brain is going to use that old tool to come to a conclusion that it, that that is completely alien and foreign to what it was uh, uh, evolved to, to do. When I was reading that chapter in particular, it was the weekend and I was outside with my son 
and we sat looking at the clouds and I went, what patterns do you see? Knowing right well, he'd, he'd come up with all kinds of shapes. And I was like, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's just like, from a young age, we do it. Like, cause we're, we have to do it to survive. We have to, yeah. And we even have a portion of our brain that is only meant to, to find that it's only job. It's only role is to see faces. We literally have a physical portion of the brain that is, that has evolved to detect facial patterns. And that's why you will, if anything even looks remotely like a face, even two dots in a line, we immediately see it as such. So uh, we're that geared toward finding patterns and chaos and signals in the noise. I thought one last one I'd pull out. And by the way, you're right, the Texas sharpshooter fallacy, if there was an Oscars for fallacies, heuristics and biases, it would win for best name. But there's so many, there's so many in the book. We actually had an actor shoot real bullets at a real barn. We shot at the barn first with rifles to get the footage, and then we had the actor shoot at the barn with live bullets, and then we had the them go paint over the actual real randomness that we created. You can see it on YouTube. I'll link to that one. But the last one I'd love to finish on, and it was, it's really hard to choose, is the availability heuristic, because this one, I think, in the advent of mass media and fake news, etc., this tells us that we're not as clever as we might think we are when we're dealing with media and information. Yeah, the availability heuristics. So when Kahneman and Tversky, they uh, produced a, a some brilliant research that was called Judgments Under Uncertainty back in the day. They sort of created, I mean, these, you know, they got the, they won the Nobel Prize in economics. Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in economics for doing psychological research into how human brains actually respond. You know, they're there's this idea of homo economis, you know, the the idea of the, the purely rational person who only pursues incentives that are good for them in the long run and all this kind of stuff that these ideas from economics that have been completely debunked and um, the social sciences as they stand today show that people don't pursue rational goals and don't do rational things all the time, depending on the context. And when making a judgment under uncertainty, they identified a number of heuristics that we're likely to engage in to reach some kind of conclusion that has nothing to do with statistics or probability. And because calculating the the probability of something actually calculating the probability is a very taxing thing. It's a lot of cognitive load and in a tooth and nail environment, you would never do such a thing. So the availability heuristic is when you predict or estimate, you predict the frequency or predict or estimate the probability of something happening in the future or the proportion of something within a population based on just how easily you can bring an example of it to your mind, like how quickly that information is available to you. And the example I usually use is how likely do you think it is that you're going to be uh, eaten by a shark? <laughs> so like if you are planning to go into to wade into the water, in a uh, like at a resort or maybe you're visiting florida or something and you're thinking about going and or you maybe you're visiting australia and you want to wade into the water and you have read a news report recently about a shark attack you're going to be less likely to get the water the the thing that's problematic and worrisome about this is that the way the news works the way media works is that they tell you things that happened and they don't tell you things that didn't happen in media theory they call this the mean world hypothesis because if you're a news organization and the area that is your beat, if nothing interesting happens there, 
then instead of going on the news that night and saying, hey, everybody, just letting you know, today was a pretty good day. And now we're going to talk about <laughs> cooking and sports. No, they just widen the radius a little wider and they cover a larger area until they find something interesting and anomalous, especially something that, that will cause you to have an emotional response like a, a murder or violence or corruption. And since all you ever see on the news is these newsworthy items, and most of them are emotionally charged, if you consume enough news information, it can start to make you think of the world as being more violent and corrupted and dangerous than it really is. Because when you're trying to make a decision based on uncertainty, instead of thinking about the actual probability of an event, you'll think about it in terms of the availability of that information to your conscious recollection. If someone you know gets sick from taking the flu, you will be less likely to get a flu shot, even though statistically that's very unlikely. And especially if the news has one story about someone getting sick from a flu shot, then you're going to be, and it could be one isolated case that might keep you away from taking, uh, taking the flu shot altogether. That's the availability heuristic in a nutshell is that the easier it is to bring something to mind, the more probable you think it is, or the more frequent you think it is. I think this is the point of the information you let into your mind is so unbelievably important. The people we let mentor and teach our children is so unbelievably important. And the people we surround ourselves with are unbelievably important for what we become. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, we tend to mistake ease of thought with probability of outcome. And we build our models of reality, not just off of our experiences of the world, but also on received wisdom from others, because it's impossible for you to know everything. It's impossible for you. You have one viewpoint. And so we have evolved to be keen on, on ingesting the sort of aggregate of many different viewpoints to get a better idea of our local environment. When you scale that up to large environments, that starts to be a not so great system because there's just too many viewpoints. And so you take the viewpoints of one or a few and you give them more statistical weight than, you know, the viewpoints of a million because you can't know everything at once. And so you have to start going on your gut, which means you have to start going on your emotional response. And some news stories and some news events and some pieces of information are going to key up your emotional reactions more than others. And those are the ones you're going to give way to because they're the ones that you commit to memory. You get this strange paradox where the more news you ingest, sometimes depending on how you're perceiving it, the less accurate your perception of the world at large can become because you're ingesting a biased stream, even, even when there's good intentions. You know, I'm not saying that the media can't be trusted not by a long shot. I'm just saying that the news only tells you what's newsworthy. And, um, and then at the same time, when you are charged with your to with going and looking for information, you're going to go do it in a confirmatory manner. You're going to go looking for information that confirms your beliefs and assumptions, and you're going to find it because with the power of Google and with the insular nature of social media, you're more likely to find news and information and even Wikipedia searches that conform to your assumptions about how the world operates. And so you can feel like you're doing your due diligence. You can feel like you're doing quote unquote research, but what you're really doing is just solidifying and hardening your existing worldview. As you say, and I think this is one of my favorite lines in the whole book, we should seek knowledge for information, but we seek it for confirmation. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the way the brain works. We, 
when we have a hunch, no matter what kind of a hunch it is, and we go looking for more information, we never look for information that would disconfirm the hunch. We look for information that would confirm it. And you're going to find it. And what that does is it causes your beliefs to become more entrenched. And that's when we had to invent science itself. Like the idea of science is to create an artificial argumentative framework in which disconfirmation is more valued than confirmation. And that system has seems to have worked pretty well so far. It's kind of new, but the the institutions of science are always going to be flawed and, and very primal. People are going to do the things that people do, but the the system, the method of treating all of your conclusions as hypotheses and, and then working to disconfirm those hypotheses instead of confirm them, that gets you closer to the truth than any other method of thinking. And thank you to you for digesting so many digests of science over the years <laughs> and making it into this very accessible fun, humoristic book. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show, David. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you want me to come speak at your thing, I will totally do that. You can find information about how to reach me at uh, davidmccraney.com. But my stuff is at youarenotsosmart.com. And that's the name of the podcast as well. You Are Not So Smart comes out every two weeks. And we talk about all this kind of stuff on there, except Instead of just me, it's me interviewing someone who's an expert on a different uh, aspect of the psychology of reasoning. And the books are You Are Not So Smart and You Are Now Less Dumb. And then I have another book coming out sometime in the next few months called How Minds Change, which will be about how people do and do not change their minds. And people in the States can look forward to the You Are Not So Smart podcast going live. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going live May 15th in New York City at Bell House. We're going to have the very first live episode of You Are Not So Smart in front of an audience. Starting uh, in the middle of March, we'll have the tickets come out. And based on how we how that works, we're going to take the show live after that on tour. And so when you listen to it on the air, you'll hear some episodes that, that were recorded in front of a live audience, and you will have an opportunity to be in that live audience. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I highly recommend the podcast, highly recommend the book author of You Are Not So Smart, Why Your Memory is Mostly Fiction, Why You Have Too Many Friends on Facebook, and 46 Other Ways You're Deluding Yourself, and host of the You're Not So Smart podcast, David McRaney. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.